the confusing thing about this in my mind is like there's Rainbow Stream Campground, there's Rainbow Dam, there's Rainbow Dam Campground. It's like there's like in this first little stretch, there's a lot of rainbows. What's up them. with Maine and rainbows? I mean, you know, white people want to uh, make things look good, dog. They yeah, put no, them yeah, fancy. They, they put them uh, good looking names on them. Yeah, they put the rainbow on it. Yeah, <laughs> instead of just uh, uh, Penobscot everything, they just made a rainbow everything. Rainbow ledges. Yeah, somebody, whoever named all the shit through here was like Rainbow Dog. Rainbow. Rainbow. Yep, that's Rainbow uh, River. Rainbow Ledges. Yep, that's Rainbow. We're going to put Rainbow Campground right here. We'll put Rainbow Dam over here on Rainbow Lake. You know, I, you know, as the only historian in the room, I think it's that's ironic it. that I'm saying this. <laughs> However, I think there's probably a way to figure out uh, why it all got named Rainbow. Sure. Like, absolutely. there's a reason. Like, if everything's yeah. named Rainbow, it's probably like that for an actual reason. It was probably some, you know hiking club member for sure it's probably somebody in the amc or the um the appalachian mountain club by that i mean or the um appalachian trail conservancy or who knows i mean i would say at this point it's probably pretty close to a century old in name because 21 is when benton mckay proposed the idea of the appalachian trail in an article to kind of um as someone in the progressive era and how people were starting to realize that um, clear cutting everything and industrialization was also producing some problems and then started, you know, sort of, I won't say creating, but like kind of recreating this idea of recreation and um, outdoor preservation for, you know, preserving something for its beauty's sake gives it value within this um, capitalist structure, basically. So the progressive era ushered in a lot of that. La dee damn da. Um, Look at you. <laughs> and whoa, you know, whoa. and here's the thing too. You know, like think about when um, Harrison Ford, Henry Ford, Harrison Ford. <laughs> that was my favorite president. Think Harrison about when Ford. Uh, well, Henry Ford also wasn't a president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was. I think it was Gerald Ford was the president. Gerald Ford yeah, yeah. And, um, Gerald and Harrison Ford when they yeah, were yeah, president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were the co-president, president, vice president. Yeah, yeah. But when Henry Ford, you know, basically invented the assembly line for automobiles, it was around the same time he that what's that? Keep going. That's around the same time that people were starting to give value to your time away from work. There was just a lot of backlash against industrialization. And um, when that came to environmental issues, labor issues, time away from your job, um, and some could say that they would have given you time away for your job. So when you're arrested, you get to your job and you do it better and faster, whatever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's neither here nor there. But at the same time that this idea of leisure of days off was coming more into the American consciousness was right at the same time where industrialization had led us to where Henry Ford is basically pumping out cars. So these people, the middle class was starting to rise like or to show up. So these people who now had more time off and um, cars were becoming more um, affordable and economic to own, all of this happens at a lot of the same time where the foundations of the AT start to take root in its creation. That's interesting because, at, like you were saying, um, this idea of leisure time becoming a thing, that's a product of kind of the end of the era of private labor, right? So Hannah Arendt talks a lot about this, about how if you are living on a farm, if you are, um, you know, getting your food out of the ground per se, right? 
all of your labor that you have to do is basically at your house. There's really no selling kind of of your own labor. Um, also, you know, also, like you're saying at this time, not only is industrialization kind of happening in the north with um, kind of the, the pulp mill industry and stuff like that, but also down here in southern Appalachia, you have textile mills and central Appalachia. You obviously have obviously have coal mines and a large um, kind of thing that, like you were saying, was different about all these places was you had scheduled time off. Yep. It was you had to be at work for a certain amount of time a day and when your labor was private you just worked until it was done. Some days you worked longer than others. Other days, maybe you labored a little bit less, right? So I think, yes, th this is something I kind of do want to get into about the trail, about how now, because we've even kind of talked about the public versus private aspect of that land ownership, right? That's and that why, stewardship. Well, that's why, um, not to interrupt you. No, you're good. But where one of my, one of the best reference points that I've found um, for all of that. And something that kind of analyzes the AT within America, or it does. The book's called Tangled Roots, The Appalachian Trail in American Environmental Politics by Sarah Middlefelt. Um, Sarah Middlefelt wrote a book called Tangled Roots, The Appalachian Trail in American Environmental Politics. And it kind of parallels the history of the AT alongside of kind of what was happening within government. And that's a big part of it. That's why she named the boot, the boot. That's why she named the book Tangled Roots, and this is quote um, from that from Sarah Meadowfelt's book, like the tangled roots that hikers encounter, encounter along the trail, for those involved in building this famous footpath, the tangled political roots of the Appalachian Trail were frustrating and difficult to navigate at times, but were ultimately an essential part of the broader system they support. So there's a, a, there's a huge amount of American political history that go into um, that, the creation and and continuance of the preservation of the Appalachian Trail that a lot of people never really consider. And if anyone is interested in political science and also outdoor recreation, I highly recommend this book because she uses the Appalachian Trail to prove a lot of um, obvious mishaps and, you know, good parts of 20th century American politics. And that was that was Loretta, if you heard that. Loretta just, because uh, again, Loretta's the other co-host on the show. Yeah. But that's right. We're coming with the guns. Yeah. I taught Matt Gross about Marxism, and here we go. That's not, that has nothing to do with Marxism. That, well, no, would, it actually does. I would actually just call does. that uh, capitalistic critique. What do you think Marxism is, brother? Like, what I do mean, you literally think? No, I don't know. I would not call, a, I guess what I'm saying is I would not call what I, I would not, um, I would not say that I, warrant enough information about it to say that that about marxism to say that anything i says it wow says, that's all i'm saying you're learning i'm not trying to have the comrades come after wow me right you are learning right now <laughs> matt gross uh, i'm not having the, the comrades like, look dude where's my fucking red bandana like, i've never been more impressed with you <laughs> like in my entire life um, like wow what a what a roller coaster we just went through right there yeah. that was beautiful so yes we will be using some uh, passages from Tangled Roots. We're gonna. It's awesome. We are both um, scholars. Like we both are uh, um, smart people. So this, according to the state of North Carolina, I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> what that means, but I'm gonna run with that. So we will be using some of our academic uh, skills. I know a lot of these podcasts don't seem like they have a lot of academia going on in them, but I swear it's going on behind the scenes. And well, this that's. Is you know, my academia has once been called by someone else in my cohort. I'm the golden corral of Appalachia studies. That's not a good thing to be. If you're a little bit hungry, but you don't know what you want, but you want to go somewhere where they got a lot of a little bit. 
That's Here I am. Yeah, that's but, my that's my place in academia so far. So I, Golden Corral was turned off for me because one time I uh, knew a woman who pointed out that the Golden Corral chocolate fountain was just like a breeding ground for disease. Like the, the Golden Corral chocolate fountain is not COVID safe at all. And I'll bet you anything that they got rid of the chocolate fountain because of COVID. I was COVID going to interrupt you because I was afraid you weren't going to talk about the chocolate fountain. But then that's what <laughs> no, you started No, 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 no. The chocolate fountain, it, it casts a large shadow over the rest of Golden Corral. So what was up? Did you want to give us like a little more history about the trail or? Yeah, I think it's um, important and a good, you know, I think to have a good reference point in that regard can turn this into something that's educational as well as entertaining, hopefully. Um, but, you know, so the progressive era of the early 20th century kind of refocused America's opinion um, on the effects of industrialization. They were becoming a lot more apparent, um, all of the good and bad of industrialization, probably what me and you would argue bad outweighed well, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. And, and what <laughs> but, we're talking about is like mass consumption. So, you know, sure. mass consumption of trees. And mass yeah, and having the, we had to have the infrastructure fuel for all of this mass consumption. Correct. So the tree, all the resources were being. That That's part of, um, that's, I guess that is part of the great American like dream, I suppose, I suppose that's, that's, that's the, the idea behind coming to this country is that there's enough to consume. Yeah. Right. So there are enough trees, there's enough, uh, land, there's enough, whatever resource you can think of, there's plenty of it to consume because, you know, if people are, uh, colonizing from Europe, what they're thinking is we won't find any more land, but surprise, surprise, there has been this land mass that people have known about since, you know, whatever, the 15, 1600s or Europeans have known about. There's always been people here, right, for thousands mm -hmm. of years. But once Europeans kind of find out about this land mass, that becomes their primary focus around the 15th. That's, you know, 1500s, 1600s. Yeah, what um, Wilma Dunaway would start to describe as the periphery of the, um, was it the center periphery and semi-periphery? So where the center of consumption is. And she might not call it the center. I can't remember now um, verbatim what she calls it. But then the center of consumption always has to find a periphery to get resources from and to also sell back goods to. Yes. And then a, a semi-periphery can kind of show up in between that also as sort of the middleman of <laughs> mass consumption. Really. Right, right, right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. No, and then, and then you know, the, the other part of that is that it always has to grow. Mm -hmm. Right. So so kind of things always have to keep being consumed, which is why there's the need for eventually um, conservancy groups. Right. That's kind of why people then have well, this idea of we should the center us. of consumption can change and Correct. then it can extend into where one of the semi peripheries or peripheries become the actual center, then have new ever growing semi peripheries and peripheries. And then the center continues to shift and at the end of it. And it's basically where we are. You know, there's not. I mean, there's just less and less to consume at every second, really. That's kind of how it works, right? You consume yep. it all until it's gone. Yep. But my bad. I didn't mean to interrupt. You, no, wanted no. To, you wanted to keep going on your... Sure, yeah. So, like, after industrialization was starting, its negative effects were starting to become more apparent, you know, a lot of... So, as the progressive era kind of, you know, started getting people thinking about the negative impacts of industrialization, like poor urban working conditions, 
um, you know, just clear cutting all the forest, the labor camps, the living conditions at the labor camps that it was taking to extract all these resources, um, you know, got a lot of people thinking about, wait a minute here, you know, like it was kind of like the colonizers realizing that they were, you know, taking everything away from themselves for the first time. Yeah. Like if we keep, if we keep going in this direction, yeah. where's that going to end up? You know, some, some real Jacob Reese shit, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And then that's kind of where you get the whole idea of Appalachia in itself becoming mm -hmm. a construct, um, according to Henry Shapiro that, and I agree with it. But, um, so it's like these people who were within the, the colony starting to see their resources leaving. It got a lot of people thinking about the, the state of things. So then this idea with the progressive era, one of the big, proponents of the progressive era was natural preservation. This is when you start to get things like the national parks. And this is when you get the great smoky mountains national park and in 1921, Benton Mackay, I think it was in an op-ed somewhere, um, wrote a, he proposed the idea of the Appalachian trail and he proposed this as a response to the economic environmental and social hardships kind of coming out of industrial America. So he was like, we're going to build this trail along the ridgeline of the East Coast. We're going to put up. He was basically wanting to build a socialist um, trail connecting farmers and like workers they could have and, and like bring that in with environmental recreation and leisure. And in 1921, he like wrote this idea out and he almost pulled it fucking so off. So basically what you're telling me is uh, some dude built the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Like 40 <laughs> years before the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it was like, yo, this is how we're going to do this. So, wow. What you're saying is uh, uh, the Viet Cong stole this dude's act. Wow. <laughs> and like, here's, here's what Ben Mackay said, or here's what he um, assumed that the App Appalachian Trail would do. He was like, uh, this was going to call what um, this is, quote, this will fix the, quote, problems of living, end quote. Um, living the, is a problem. I will let, <laughs> yeah, let me testify all, to that. Everybody, we know that living is a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some but he, of us more uh, than others. He like saw this opportunity of the growth in outdoor recreation, forest conservation, and he saw that moving kind of in unison with the advent of labor activism and reform and like regional planning. So what Benton Mackay, he was trying to be the great mediator of this ever growing larger governmental force that was starting, you know, this is kind of when the new deal comes in too. So right. the, the government seemingly more in America's history, in my opinion, was trying to instill responsibility of themselves, our government through this era, they were trying to build these things like national parks or whatever. That's a bad example because of land displacement for everyone involved, but infrastructure, you know, they were worrying about us, having more leisure and what happened, you know, we all know what happened, you right. know, people started losing money. So those progressive new deal ideas get shifted out into more private business and it's crazy. And you know, the AT was being made during all that. So it's seen a lot of, of shift in citizens ideas of what government's responsibilities are to us. And, and we even still kind of see the um, impact of this to this day, right? Even here locally, I don't know how much the Blue Ridge Conservancy does with the parts of the Appalachian trail um, that are kind of around here. Right. I don't know much that much about their, their business, but in researching the, the AT and in researching, especially even just some of this stuff, like we're still we're still way up in Maine. We haven't even even crossed the state border yet. We haven't crossed the state line. Obviously, we're at the very beginning. But, you know, a lot of conservancy groups, a lot of these nonprofits, right, that 
kind of our stewards of these places. There's, um, I don't want to say profit to be made, but there are careers to be made in protecting acres and acres of wildlife or miles and miles of wildlife. And even you have to kind of wonder in this sort of mass consumer world that we live in, would people be as um, incentivized to look after miles and miles of wilderness like this if there wasn't careers to be made? Sure. I think, I think so. Sure. Well, and, and well here's I, why. Well, hold, here's on, wait, hold, wait, wait, so. wait, hold on, wait, hold on, wait, hold on, wait, hold on, wait. Sure, people can, people can want to um, protect the planet and people can love the environment and people can all that, right? Um, but if you made it not worth people's time i suppose or if people knew that they could um if you weren't able to feed yourself by doing work like that would people still do it i think so because you think, you think people, people would, you won't let me finish or you won't would, even let me start what well, hold on wait so so wait and i guess what i'm asking is you think people would um, I heard what you were asking you al- allow themselves to go hungry versus do work like that I can go now. Sorry. Um, the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy doesn't protect any of the AT, just first of all. Okay. Um, but we can just edit all that out anyway. Um, Leaving it in. I think so. I think that there can be something found in what nature does to us that if this was outside, and that's like that you're only looking at this with an economic value. I think that there is a value that inherently from an, from just being a human that one could find in nature that would make them as passionate about protecting that as it would them um, having to eat dinner and survive. I do. And I think what makes within this system that we are now, I don't think the people that are good at land preservation or rivershed protection are the only, the ones that are the best at that. The good ones within that are the ones that have understood that, Previously, they would maybe still be doing this, but then also observing their place within this mass consumption society and realizing that that's the only way that they're going to be able to be effective. Um, and I think that's tricky for some people, you know, like, oh, I agree. I think it's hard for people to sell out. Yeah, because you know? no, I mean, conservation right? is a huge industry, man. Like yep. it pays a lot of bills and a lot of those jobs are can be well-paying at the top. You know, all these things have board of directors, um, lobbyists, you know, but the ones who are on the, you know, the, the ground floor of that, it takes someone who realizes it at a, I think more humanistic level to be good at their job. And I think Andy Hill is one of those people, the Watauga river keeper, you know, it's like that dude is, one of the most passionate people I've ever met about protecting the Watauga river shed. And it's not because he gets paid to do it. That's how they, that's why they asked him to do the job. That wasn't necessarily like, (laughs) that was not not a um, like job trajectory for him. That wasn't like a ring up the ladder. He was, Mm -hmm. had just started a fishing guide service and was out there doing it anyway. And they were like, why don't you be the Watauga river keeper? And I guess that kind of, you know, and this is a conversation we can keep having just throughout the, um, you know, we don't have to solve this one yeah. right now oh, yeah, or, or yeah. even have an answer for it right now. But, uh, you know, that kind of does get into this idea. Like you were saying, I'm thinking about it in terms of economics and value. Like, well, yeah, you just said that the Watauga Riverkeeper used to have a business where he would take people commercial fishing. Mm-hmm. Right. Being a fishing guide is in a way profiting off of nature. Right. Even if sure. you are catching and releasing them. Absolutely. right? It's um, profiting off of the idea that you 
you have this knowledge of where these fish are and, you know, somebody who's coming up here on vacation does not. Right. So you, you have this connection with nature and because you have it, you're more valuable to maybe somebody who kind of comes up here. So that's kind of even one thing that even fascinates me about this AT project is, um, yes, hiking the Appalachian trail is this connection with, with, um, with nature. It is this almost leisure time activity. And you only think of it as leisure time because you don't think of that as work, even though that's a lot of labor. That's a lot of hard stuff you're doing. Well, well, hold on, hold on. When I like, I think I don't, you know, the idea of the through hiker, I don't know. Like when I say like the AT was becoming more available for leisure. I mean, people were being able to access it easier um, hours or a couple days at a time. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I think that that's a completely different um, umbrella there. I, I, I hear, okay. And maybe, maybe I do hear what you're saying. But I, I think, so, I think your argument works. I'm just saying, yeah, I yeah. think you should use that to frame it with instead of someone who's out there through hiking. Okay. So then let me ask it. Let me ask it like this. Do you think you were laboring working or do you consider your time on the at leisure time i don't know man like laboring on the mine bro yeah, <laughs> like bro. Uh, yeah, bro. you know working on the self yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, no, that's why i was like that because labor and work are in my definition two separate things labor is kind of this thing you do repetitively with the idea that like it's going to secure your survival work is something that you kind of do um in search of permanence or in search of kind of trying to leave a mark for as long as you can, right? Like the Sistine Chapel is a great work. Mona Lisa is a great work. Um, you know, if me and you go take bar shifts this weekend, we're laboring because you know no one's gonna remember those well drinks that we poured for people. Within you know I mean? within those parameters, I'm gonna call uh, my southbound through hike of 2014 a great work. I knew that was coming. I saw <laughs> that. Sure. I saw that coming. I saw uh, that coming. A, by the way. As far as I'm concerned, it was a great work. Well, and and <laughs> actually, well, and and actually, in search of permanence, you did do a really good job of. Uh, um, documenting the whole thing right yeah, on, on yeah. audio and now you even have the digital mm-hmm. files right so even if you know you can donate those to somebody you can give those to a library or something i mean we're using it for this hopefully this is something that you know has some sort of lasting stay power but yeah i mean at this point i would say possible but it was a lot of uh it was hard right it yeah. was it wasn't easy well to and do something like, like that you know, we get kind of getting back to what i was saying earlier about you don't think of it as leisure because I mean, or you don't think of it as work because you're not getting paid for it, even though you were exhausting yourself. Sure. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you know, since we've, this is where we've gotten to within this episode so far, but in a lot of almost, I would say almost every day I was out there, I was fully aware of how soon I was going to have to start laboring again. You oh, know absolutely. What I mean? Yeah. You know, like as my bank account was dwindling and I was like, like wondering what type of labor I would do, but that is funny because I I definitely had that um, thought process in my head too about you know I'm working as hard right now as I've ever labored in my life, and I thought about that as like you know time off. I I kind of had this conversation before I really knew the sort of um, theoretical principles of what we're talking about that I'm learning more about now in grad school, um, but I thought about that a lot. You know, what like what what I was doing in the sense of was it time off or was it work or was this just, you know, like I definitely thought about how quickly I was going to have to start laboring again, for sure. Right. Right. And and so that's kind of 
that is, like I said, one thing that kind of drew me to this this project in the first place. Beyond you know just having a diary of someone that hiked the AT, it's like the King of Appalachia hiked the AT. Yeah, yeah, right. No, that's totally what I was thinking. Absolutely, <laughs> the whole time. Uh, but no, but even just this idea of having this discussion of somebody who has how how long is the Appalachian Trail? Like how many miles? Um, right at it's like twenty one eighty. So that's what I'm saying. Somebody who has walked that long has has completed such a thing, right? But you never so far you haven't gotten paid for it some people have right we were talking about a book earlier that you were saying the guy didn't even finish the at and he wrote a book and he's probably probably not super rich off of it or anything what's that ah, guy's name no he's bill bill bryson is a very successful author okay oh very no i mean no actually i did author. see about three or four books so. yeah yeah he's yeah, got, yeah. He's, um, he's he's probably he's probably doing all right he's for what's the history of the world or whatever i think was what oh it is, or, i think he's that guy fuck off yeah no yeah Yes. No, literally. The exactly. history of the world. Oh, yeah. Dude. That's an ambitious and it's project. Like, yeah. You're going to handle that yourself, yeah, are you? And there's another one. Oh, that's shit. Like, um, something about like kind of it's, he's he's like a tra- he's just a, a pretty successful travel writer. Oh, I bet he is. And I it's, you know, what I, I would call what he was doing when he was hiking the AT uh, labor because he was intentionally out there. It was almost like right. uh, local Ooh. color writing. Ooh. He, he was. And I've, I've been real into this. Um, I I. From doing a historiography for Bruce Stewart's class this semester on tourism in Appalachia, one of the most fascinating things to me was the change in medium of advertisement. So, and that's all local local color writing was, was print advertisement of this idea of an area or of what was there. And, you know, regardless of how much of that was true. Um, and then how that kind of started shifting towards billboards and how that started shifting then everything like Dollywood or the um, Cherokee at the uh, mm-hmm. Kuala, you know, on the Kuala Reservation mm-hmm. and how they all started um, implementing these like live action plays to get their thing across. And it was like this whole thing that happened everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fascinating. And then now how that's then like pamphlets that you would hand out and now social media and how like this idea of wherever it is you want to go or what you'd be doing with your leisure time, how the advertising advertisement of that has shifted through the media of medium in advertising is fascinating. To me. Well, so the, uh, I wrote about this in my thesis. Uh, <laughs> there's, I guess in pigeon forge, they have a, a hillbilly dinner theater that is basically like if you ever been to like the Dixie Stampede or if you yeah, ever yeah. been to like uh, like medieval times, it's basically like that. But the two sides are the Hatfields and the McCoys. And the one of the ways that they market it, I'm sure they market it a bunch of different ways, pamphlets and all that, like you're saying. But one of the ways they market it is they have a bunch of dudes get to maybe women to get together on this old looking jalopy looking thing that looked like it took the Beverly Hillbillies out west. And they all kind of get on there. They've all got overalls on. And that's what they do. Like they kind of carnival bark at you like from the street. Right. Yeah. Kind of this mix of like old marketing and new marketing mm-hmm. where it's this it's this kind of hillbilly character that you want to see. Like when you go to Pigeon Forge, like you want to see a person in overalls. Mm-hmm. Right. Like kind of like when you come to Boone, that's, you know, I'm sure people are tickled to death. Well, here's the thing when about they see shit a like lot that, of that, right? too, with right around when we were talking and the inflammation of or the, you know, the start of Great Smoky Mountains National Park that placed the Cherokee Reservation and Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, as the gates to this newly established idea of American recreation. Yep. And how the Cherokee, and this is, I need to be very careful here. And I was trying to, I tried to be very careful in my um, final for Bruce about this. I think there are, I need to be really careful. The experience of what the Cherokee 
had when they were placed at that gate to the Great Smokies is fundamentally a different conversation than the experience oh, absolutely. that the white settlers oh, and pigeon forest had. Absolutely. But there are very close similarities to how they have had to adjust their marketing and adjust like selling a little bit of their their the perceived stereotype back to people to be able to make it and also to be able to preserve part of their history. And I will also be very careful here. However, <laughs> one thing that I remember um, at least watching, it was like a, a documentary I watched in a class once, right? In a history class. Um, however, one thing that always stuck with me about what, like literally what you're saying about the marketing of Cherokee, North Carolina and on the Koala Boundary, you know, where they got the, the casino there and they've got all sorts of, you know, plays and all that sorts of stuff, restaurants. Um, one thing that always stuck with me was a documentary that I had watched where I guess in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, somebody had taken a camera to Cherokee, North Carolina. And at least at that time, um, there were like side of the road shows or people trying to get you to come to uh, uh, shops and things like that. And they were um, indigenous people, but they had feathers in their hair. They, they got um, they call that the, the the chief everybody, the chiefdom of. Yeah the singularity of viewing indigenous culture. That's what I was about to say was that after the kind of the documentary went off, that was what my professor Sorry. got up and said was, he was like, you know, um, that's a Plains Indians thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so um, people who were indigenous to what we would consider Colorado and Oklahoma and stuff like that, that was uh, part of their culture, right? That had really nothing to do with the Cherokee who would have no reason to come in contact with those people. Cause the only reason you would probably venture out would be to trade, trade yeah. right? At a certain point, once yeah. you've gotten everything you need, you just go home. Yeah. Right. So, but, but yeah, absolutely. It's this idea of white people, mostly in this country, see um, indigenous people as one thing. And so that's got to be the um, the warrior or the noble savage, mm -hmm. or it's got to be one of these archetypes, right? That like you're saying about Pigeon Forge and mm -hmm. about Knoxville, exactly. these are some of the same, you know, yeah. it's different, but it's like there are, there are archetypes it's that you are looking for when nature. you come here. It's fundamental in, uh, fundamentally different in its foundations. But about this time yes. in the um, early 20th century, how they were both adapting to these newly initiated demands of mass consumption. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, and uh, they, it, it's, it's a very similar trajectory since then. Like I'm saying, yep. fundamental difference at the root of it. Right. But a lot of the experience within um, how they had to adapt to advertise themselves and also be able to get um, actual truth out there of right. what it was to be that, regardless of that was a, at this point, you would have been called a quote unquote hillbilly mm -hmm. or, you know, a, you would definitely probably not have been called a Native American, but that's, right. you know, um, and how they had to interact with this, you know, newly, you know, the, Tourism wasn't new in Appalachia at that point, but it was adapting to the middle class at a rate that was well. What, um, what's new at this like never been seen. What's new? I was about to say what's new at this time is mass consumption, mm. and this this is kind of again. This is again where my thesis comes into play here. Uh, this is also the kind of time that you see the birth of hillbilly music, or you see sure. the birth of sort of these cultural aspects that go along with. Um, 
uh, also, you know, kind of hand in hand with tourism. And we still have that to this day, right? Come to uh, North Carolina and come watch an old time jam. Mm-hmm. Can't watch that in Indiana. You can't go see that in you Florida. Watch that in Indiana from. if Trevor McKenzie goes there. But. That, but but how often does Trevor, you know what I'm saying? Well, well okay, I thought you, you let me off on one. I thought you were going to say, but what would that make Trevor? What would he be doing there? No. Would he be no. laboring? No. no All no, the no. untouchable. <laughs> But like I was saying, all these things kind of, um, I don't want to say come about around the same time, but it's no coincidence, I believe, that, you know, um, this this idea of the Appalachian Trail and this idea of conservancy and this idea that um, mass consumption is something that people is even on their minds comes about 20 years after the turn of the century, right? Um, this is also around the time you're talking about conditions in labor camps. They were pretty squalid and pretty bad in especially most situations. One thing though, that especially in my own research that I've found is a lot more access to consumer goods. So that's kind of, again, where my thesis comes into this is a big part of why the music industry got so big was because radios became easier and easier for people to acquire, right? And people were kind of consuming radios. So that was one benefit of moving off the farm and moving into the labor camp was that you did have access to kind of more, um, you know, consumption items. I'm not saying that's good or bad or right or wrong, but this idea of, of, of paying, paying for your entertainment and paying for your leisure, that's another way that it manifests around this time. Commodities. Yes. Commodities. And, you know, you're talking about the um, radio and we have to, one of the most important parts of it that was getting, what was getting the radios to people at first railroads. Mm -hmm. And so it's like with the advancement of railroads, you were quickening how fast you could take resources out, but you were also expediting how quick you could get these commodities to sell back into those communities. And you were through railroads, um, systematic institutions. Now we're getting obviously back a little bit, but um, like slavery, we're able to reach mm-hmm. further into mm-hmm. the mountains and stuff where there's this perceived idea of there not being a lot of, uh, you know, slavery or Appalachia was a slave free place. Um, so it's like, it's just, Bringing all of mass consumption further in yep. through railroads while it extracts all its resources. And then just and then now to get it back to what we're talking about with AT to bring mm-hmm. in more time specific. And it's another very important part of what we're both talking about. There was another huge shift there with that. And that was the advent of the automobile. Yes. Yes. And and all I was going to say was um, especially especially with the automobile, right? Especially, and with what what you're saying with railroads, if things are moving quicker, right? If you can move automobiles quicker and quicker by the year, every year you can get more, you know, automobiles from one place to the next and you can do it faster and you can get more there. It's suffice to say, you're probably like making more money, right? Exactly. Well, right? that's, and, and it's forever expanding and it yeah, has to and forever that's why expand. It's so important that that was happening alongside, you right. know, labor um, activism. And what do you need when you have more cars? More resources, right? Better roads. Yes. So during the New Deal, you produce this whole infrastructure plan to get people going on vacation, um, to get it to have more access. Come look at the leaves, everybody. Well, and did you know? Even if you don't have to put, if we don't, we don't have to just put it within recreation, but um, just putting it within connectiveness. You know, because that was a perceived thing of why places were poor; they just weren't connected enough to the right to the um, center of the mass consumption. Right. Which is we all now know. 
false. Yes. <laughs> That's not how you fix poverty. Let's, no. build, let's build more roads. Let's, hey, you know what these people need? More capitalism. Yes. It doesn't, it, yeah, wait, capitalism seems to be the problem? Oh, you know, we, we need more of that shit. We need to go faster. And all of that it really parallels um, the progress and the entire history of the Appalachian Trail. And it's something I don't think is considered by the day-to-day leisure hiker. Right. You know, recreational outdoorsman. 